In the game of life, maintaining a healthy lifestyle and nurturing meaningful connections with family can be among the most formidable challenges we face. We were, in some respects, football players playing tennis. We brought the Northern Michigan fight to everywhere we played. Yet for many professional athletes, fostering both has proven to be a triumphant recipe for success. You never thought of tennis as this rough and tough thing. And so tennis just took our family places that we could never do in other sports. I'm John Frankel. For the past two decades, I've traveled the globe covering some of the most impactful human interest stories in sports. On this show, I'm sitting down with some of the biggest families in the game, the legends, current superstars, and the up-and-coming playmakers to understand what's really making them tick. What can pro-athlete families teach a new generation about the importance of caring for your health and finding success in the face of adversity? Together, we'll hear stories of their remarkable comebacks, setbacks, and the crucial role their family and self-care played in their paths to championship glory. This is Heart of the Game. The early 1990s were a transformative time for the game of tennis. Pete Sampras, Steffi Groff, and Monica Seles dominated the courts, winning multiple Grand Slam titles. Another superstar, Andre Agassi, helped to sell the game to an entirely new audience with his brash demeanor and flamboyant style. Image is everything. No one, however, had a bigger and more immediate impact on the game than Luke and Murphy Jensen. With their wild hair and love of rock music, the Jensen brothers hit the hardcourt with a shaggy-haired vengeance and ushered in the era of grunge tennis, which is just another way of saying they stood out from most other tennis players. Their outsized charisma and irreverent style of play made them folk heroes for a new generation of tennis fans and made them superstars off the court. Daring to be different, as Murphy once put it, was their brand. We are now flying around in private jets and limousines and the commitment I felt like I was in a hurricane and a tornado for the next eight to 10 years. The rude dudes of tennis, as Rolling Stone called them, also had serious game. On June 5th, 1993, they proved it on national television, winning the French Open doubles championship. The Jensens were the toast of tennis, even getting to play under the lights at the US Open, virtually unheard of at the time for doubles matches. Unfortunately, the good times didn't last long. Instant stardom proved overwhelming for Murphy Jensen. I was restless, and I self-medicated, and that eventually led to uh, using drugs on top of that and pills. It would take him years to rebuild his life, but he did. He found a new purpose in helping others fight addiction. And like his big brother Luke, he stayed close to the sport that gave them both so much. But Murphy Jensen's struggles were not over. One afternoon in 2021, he nearly died on the tennis court after going into cardiac arrest. So he's there on the ground. We got people all around. And as the professionals are trying to bring him back to life, get his heart going, they give me the assignment to keep talking to him, to keep him with us. And the only thing that kept popping in my mind is I may be saying the last words of my life to my brother. Once again, Murphy Jensen was tested. And what followed is another chapter in the remarkable story of two of the most unique figures in the history of tennis, 
I'm really pleased. Luke Jensen and younger brother Murphy Jensen spending some time with us here on Heart of the Game. And therein lies the crux of this story, which we will get to because this really is about the heart when it comes to Murphy Jensen. But first, we want to talk about you guys as the Rude Dudes. For those who don't know, the Jensen brothers, is it fair to say, took the world of tennis by storm. You'd been out there, you'd been journeymen, you, right? That's a fair way to put it, journeymen? I would say so. I mean, we were out there. Murphy's two and a half years younger. I turned pro after two years at Southern Cal. And then he showed up on the scene at Southern Cal for two years before going to Georgia for a year. But I'd been out there for a little bit and making my way on the double side of it. And then when Murphy kind of showed up, he had to go through the minor leagues. And then going into 93 that season, we had made a decision to live a lifelong dream to play on the tour together. So his ranking was in the top 100. I was in the top 10. So we could get into most of those tournaments. And we started out in the Middle East in Doha, Qatar. And so that was our start as a doubles team on the main tour. We played some minor league tournaments together. And of course, uh, when we're younger, but this was the real deal. We were committing to the tour with each other. When you decided to play together, was that willingly or was that big brother saying, you're going to do this because I want you to do it? Well, I mean, along the way, there's blood, sweat, and tears to get to that decision. But you had serious game. Well, we we had enough of a game to get there, be there, and win there at the highest level at the French Open. It was a... A journey from a Christmas tree farm in northern Michigan, a sacrifice for mom and dad to give us an opportunity to live our dreams. And everywhere we kept going in this game of tennis, Luke was the number one junior tennis player in the world at the age of 18 on the cover of Tennis Magazine alongside, you know, ahead of Becker and Edberg and all of them. And so he made the decision to go to college, which was, you know, really a, a bad move, Luke. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I want to go back to your youth for a minute. You grow up on this Christmas tree farm in Ludington, Michigan, right? Which is all the way west. I mean, literally on the on Lake Michigan. Yep. If, mm-hmm. I, if I have it right. Maybe not the tennis hotbed of the world, <laughs> Ludington, Michigan. How do you guys end up on a tennis court? The biggest thing is we had parents that were ex-athletes. My dad ended up playing college football at Minnesota and then Memphis State transferred there, and then for a cup of coffee for the New York Giants. We got his contract, and it was, you know, all this Sam Huff and all these guys back, and, you know, some amazing times. And and then my mom was a frustrated athlete, six foot two, played basketball in high school, but there was no Title IX for her. So we have two frustrated athletes that go get their degrees in physical education, and they park their place in 1966 and have four kids in this small town in Ludington, Michigan. And when they decide to have kids, they want athletics to be their kid's avenue to see the world. And tennis was the one sport. I mean, football was supposed to be our sport, but tennis was the one thing that my sisters could play and my brother and I could play, and we could go to these same tournaments. And to be perfectly honest, it was the Arthur Ashes and the Billie Jean Kings, the Chris Everts and the Jimmy Connors, and these people who were at the top of the game at the time that really inspired my parents, like, tennis is the vehicle. Because when I'd step on a football field, there were kids just as big as I was, if not bigger. 
But in tennis, I was like the dominant alpha physically. And then Murphy, I mean, Murphy's six foot four, I'm six two. And at the time, tennis was really a wimp sport. You never thought of tennis as, you know, this rough and tough thing. And so tennis just took our family places that we could never do in other sports. Given that your dad had this background in football, was he a drill sergeant on the tennis court? Was he a guy, did he bring that football mentality to, to teaching you the game? I mean, it started really with the football. We used tennis as a vehicle to become great football players. It wasn't to become great tennis players. I can say he took the old school football mentality of we were showing up for practice on time, if you know what I mean. But at the same time, that discipline, there was nothing but love from both sides. If anything, it was about behaving properly. That was the real message, that we gave this thing everything we had. And so we were taught at an early age that you, know, you do things right in the right way and you're going to see results. I would assume, as you guys progress in tennis, that your goal was singles. That's where tennis put the spotlight. Well, no doubt we were doing everything. We just wanted to play. And if, whether it was singles, doubles, or mixed, we were playing tennis. We were spending thousands of hours on those tennis courts, seven days a week, 365. I turned pro. Luke had had an injury that sidelined him, and, and money was tight at home. And he his doubles game took off real quick with a win at Monte Carlo, and he breaks the top 10, maybe even top five that year with Laurie Warder. But at the same time, it was pretty obvious that if we're going to play doubles with anybody on the tour, we're going to play with each other. And the off-season, Christmas and New Year's of 93, before going to Doha, we were on our way. It was grunge tennis, you know, everything grunge Seattle. And, you know, we didn't have an image and we didn't set out to do anything but to kick some butt and win, you know, the next 12 months. And in six months, we, we won a little tournament in Paris. Yeah, just a small one. It's, it's, a, it's at this place called Roland Garros. I, I think I've heard of it. There's a huge tower there. Check it yeah. out. <laughs> um, let's talk about the landscape of tennis as you two begin to make a name for yourselves. Tennis in the late 80s, early 90s, it's still largely considered a gentleman's sport. But there was also this transformative period. Okay, tennis is is not just on the back pages of the sports section. It's really beginning to take front and center for a lot of people. And then you guys come along, and would you guys agree that you guys took the tennis scene by storm and you were these brash young brothers who brought that football mentality of your dad's to the tennis court? There's no question that's exactly right, that we were, in some respects, football players playing tennis. And if I look back at John McEnroe gets to Wimbledon as a 17 year old and he starts throwing his racket going crazy and they start there was a buzz about it well we started high-fiving and fighting we brought the northern Michigan fight to uh, everywhere we played people knew they stepped on the court they're gonna play a couple of rough you know, lumberjacks basically <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to 1993 June you win the French Open doubles you win a grand slam what does that feel like? Well, for me, it was the it was the greatest accomplishment. You fight so hard in that match in the finals. We were down 3-0 in the third, and I remember specifically thinking, 
that if we don't win this, we may never get here again. Like there are matches that, listen, you want to win, but it's not going to kill you if you lose. It's a nice, you know, moral victory. But you get in those finals, there's a big difference between being known as a French Open champion or a French Open runner-up. So you win this match. Yep. And not only have you survived and advanced, but you've won it all. How does life change for you guys on and off the court as a result of that win? Once you win those majors, you're a made man. Like, no one could ever say you were never good enough. You're a French Open champion. You you are a made player. Everything you thought you could be, you just accomplished it. But Murphy, what were you thinking on the other side? Two things I, I felt in that moment. One, that there were like the tennis gods were accepted into this club of those that win something like this. And the second thing was an overwhelming feeling that I found out later. Um, my hand started shaking and I had a panic attack. And my outsides in that moment, we were the best in the world in that moment on that day. But my insides were in my head was saying, you know, you suck. You're not enough. You know, just wait. Did you feel like an imposter? I think I was just scared. Scared of the limelight, the expectations? Scared of what was to come. Everything changed for the brothers after the French Open victory. The Jensens were no longer just the gregarious siblings who put on a show on the court. They were Grand Slam champions and in high demand. Always willing to promote the sport, they kept up a whirlwind schedule of media appearances and kids' clinics. They even began getting appearance fees to show up at tournaments, something that was unheard of for doubles. In 1995, they played under the lights at the U.S. Open on primetime television, a spotlight that almost never was available to doubles players. The Jensens had officially arrived, but the skyrocketing fame took a toll on Murphy. He began missing matches and skipping appearances. While his career on the court was peaking, by 1999, his life off it was spiraling out of control in a haze of substance abuse. I don't think I was ready uh, emotionally, definitely not ready, mentally. I, I didn't have the tools to embark on what was to come. And what was to come was big agent signs us to a deal, Peter Moore, Bob Strasser buys Adidas. Peter Moore uh, made the Air Jordan shoe, and now he's sketching out what the Jensen Brothers image and brand's gonna look like. We are now flying around in private jets and limousines, and I felt like I was in a hurricane and a tornado for the next eight to 10 years. Absolutely out of control. I was uncomfortable in my skin, I was restless. I found myself starting to self-medicate and isolate with alcohol. And that eventually led to uh, using drugs on top of that and pills. It was during the 1999 U.S. Open that Murphy Jensen had reached the end of his rope and contemplated the unthinkable. We lose whatever round, and it was during the time my son Billy was being born 24 years ago. And I was uh, looking at jumping out of a window in New York City. And instead of a hotel manager calling the police, he called 
an interventionist. And uh, by the time I got to Los Angeles, maybe a week or two later, you know, I went through a psych ward and a detox and got help. First of all, I'm so sorry you've gone through this. Mm, thank you. But it sounds like you're doing okay today. Yeah, I'm doing great. Given that you're now how many years sober? 24 years in recovery. I had a reoccurrence relapse after four and a half years. And I have not had to look back in 17, 18 years. Just so the audience can understand here, it wasn't the glory of winning a Grand Slam and becoming celebrities that led you to this partying life that has occurred with so many other athletes. All of a sudden they hit it big, there's money flowing in, there's limos, there's private planes, everybody's throwing a party for you. Yeah. That was not why you fell into this lifestyle. It was for you more of an escape from that very existence? Yeah, I think the centerpiece of what I've learned over 24 years, what I treat on a daily basis, even to this day, is my head will tell me I need to be somewhere other than where I'm at. Or whatever I'm doing isn't what I should be doing. As opposed to, you know, having the tools and the ability to be still, be calm, be present, breathe, relax. You know, it's called the human condition. I've been restless, irritable, and discontent for a long time. I go back to first time I ever was offered a, an alcoholic beverage, and it was, I was 12, 13 years old. And I had no interest in, in that stuff and no exposure to that, but the reason, my motive for saying yes is I wanted your approval. I wanted your affection. You know, I wanted you to like me. And, of course, and then, hey, you get to high school, smoke this. What is this? I wanted your approval. I wanted your affection. Now, I've got the approval and affection, and I, and I found myself in my playing days on the tour, and I'm absolutely empty and in some ways soulless. And you know, I was so afraid to, to speak up or ask for help because I didn't know what the heck was wrong with me. Were you playing matches under the influence? Yeah, I have. Luke, did you know? The first time I found out, and I forgot what year it was in Rome. And Murphy was always kind of a free spirit. Sometimes I had to get my own practice partner. If he didn't practice for a couple days, that was understood. But one day goes by with no practice. And then the day before we play, usually we get at least a practice in, and he didn't practice. So I just had this really strange feeling. He's not answering his phone. So I go down and get his uh, room number, and I go to the floor. And I just noticed, or I hear on his floor, there's some noise or something at the end of the hallway. So I start going towards his room, and it's the noise is coming from his room. And the door is open. Every light is open. The TV's on. It's just loud and bright. And there he is on the bed with his eyes wide open. And he had a cigarette in his mouth looking at me. I didn't know he even smoked. At that moment... I was brought into a world that I had no idea even existed, much less that we were playing professional tennis and he was in that state. Murphy sought help for his addictions. Years later, once he had turned things around, Murphy realized his story of recovery and redemption could help others who were struggling with substance abuse. He co-founded the company WeConnect. Its mission is to help people tackle their mental health and drug abuse issues. You took your path 
and used it as an opportunity once you got yourself clean and back on your feet to then try and help others. You wanted to pay it forward. And you start this business with some other folks called We Connect. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose that path? We grew up Catholic. And the difference between religion and spirituality is religions for people that are afraid of going to hell and spirituality is for people that have been there. And uh, I follow a spiritual path and one of the, my values and principles is service to others and helping others. And it was never to start a company. I didn't ever see any of this as an opportunity. The truth of be said, those early days, it was the worst thing that could have happened to me absolutely ground zero of hell. So, you know, I've co-founded We Connect, and speaking of that spiritual, I left tennis nine years ago with no We Connect on the other side. There wasn't like, I want to work in recovery. My heart told me I had more to offer this world than coaching superstars and expensive tennis experiences. And so We Connect is a mobile application that has support and services, and it's basically a lifeline anonymous and confidential lifeline for any mom and dad, brother, sister, with support group meetings built in an app. And it, it's unbelievable. We've we've served millions of people from 30 countries currently. And we're, it's our, our, our job and our mission and at, that, at our organization is to help others. Luke, when you hear Murphy talk about what he's been through, how does that feel as an older brother? The number one thing is that recovery works. I'm a witness to that. To see him grow, his weapon in tennis was his serve. But his weapon in life, his purpose in life is to serve others. When we return, Murphy Jensen on turning his life around. And just when he almost had it together, everything came crashing back down. And now Murphy's serving He's looking at me and he's smiling because we're just having fun. He's setting up the serve and all of a sudden he just crashes to the ground. He's gone into a cardiac arrest. Part of the game. We'll be right back. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. And now back to Heart of the Game. After their playing days ended, the Jensens both continued to stay involved in tennis in various ways. Luke Jensen went into TV as a tennis analyst for ESPN. He then coached the Syracuse University women's tennis team for nearly eight years. Murphy Jensen also maintained close ties with the sport, 
while continuing his recovery and his work helping others with addiction. In 2021, the brothers were playing in a celebrity exhibition in Colorado for the Gooder Grand Slam, an event that raises money for sudden cardiac arrest awareness. As Murphy was getting ready to serve the ball, Luke looked over and realized something was terribly wrong with his little brother. He was having a heart attack right there on the court. One would think that dealing with the addiction that you did and sinking to the depths that you did to where you're contemplating suicide, but then you come through it on the other side, you'd think that's the worst thing I'm going to deal with in life. And maybe it was. But then you fast forward to October of 2021, and you guys are back together again on the tennis court, right? Playing in an exhibition. Take me there and tell me how the day unfolds. Yeah, so I, I've just taken a, a job as the director of tennis at the Garden of the Gods. So Murphy says, you know, I'll come out, we'll play an exhibition for your first week and celebrate. So we're out there and we're playing a, a little doubles exhibition. Murphy and I are always talking a little trash and who's going to win and everything. And we've got a couple hundred people there. And now Murphy's serving. He's looking at me and he's smiling because we're just having fun. He's setting up the serve. And all of a sudden, he just crashes to the ground. The first responders, they know right away through their professionalism, he's gone into a cardiac arrest. One of the uh, medical professionals says, where's the defibrillator? I know from my training being there, my facilities, walkthroughs and everything, I've got an AED 30 feet behind me on that court. Just so people understand, an AED, an automated external... Defibrillator. Defibrillator. Yep. So there was blood coming from the back of his head. So now we had not only cardiac arrest situation he had flatlined and as the professionals are trying to bring him back to life get his heart going they give me the assignment to keep talking to him to keep him with us the only thing that kept popping in my mind is i may be saying the last words of my life to my brother what do you say to someone who's been your best friend your brother you've been with him your entire life and you're saying goodbye our whole lives, we had this thing in our family. It's a motto, basically, that Jensen's never quit. You can lose, you can be tired, but Jensen's never quit. Your family is here, your family needs you. They'd gotten him the heart going, and then you would hear the doctors that are checking his pulse. No pulse, no pulse. It took 17 minutes for the ambulance to get there, and in that time, he had flatlined four times. That was the toughest part for me. Murphy, what do you recall? Since obviously you were in a situation where you had flatlined, you had died more than once, what do you recall? Do you even remember tossing the ball to serve? First off, I remember nothing. And, and that's very common for a cardiac arrest event. Is some people I've talked to uh, have lost a couple of years of memory. The lack of oxygen for that long, it's a miracle that I uh, don't have permanent brain damage today. There were no symptoms. We know it wasn't shortness of breath, numbness in the fingers or any, nothing like that. I have no memory of the day before. I may have, for, you know, lost a month for all I, you know, to think about it. You know, when I was stabilized in the coma for six days, they didn't know which Murphy they're going to get back, how much brain damage had been caused, the skull fractures and concussions. And I come to, and 
Luke is there, and my wife Kate says, "You know, you're in the ICU. You've had you've been in a coma. You had a cardiac arrest." And it was really a couple of days of them repeating that. Murphy, before you have this traumatic and dramatic event in October of 2021, and experience cardiac arrest, you did have a history, right, of some heart issues before this. Is that right? Yeah, 11 years ago, I was diagnosed, or maybe even longer, I had a virus as a result of getting the flu. It attacked my heart. It was called viral cardiomyopathy. And then when they did the MRI or the scans, they showed an enlarged heart as a result of a lot of athletes have a heart that does a lot of work, an enlarged heart. And that led to an atrial fibrillation, AFib issues, where I've had two different ablations and a number of cardioverts to reset my heart. Did doctors think you were at risk of having a severe heart attack? Back in the days of my viral cardiomyopathy, my heart function was less than 8%. It was horrible, maybe even less than 5%. I had a terrible heart function, and they had me on meds they would prescribe to a 90-year-old. A normal heart function is actually around 50%, they had told me. And at the time of the cardiac arrest, after two ablations over time, Uh, my heart function was over 80%. So I could not have been in better physical heart health. Is there any hint or suggestion, medical suggestion, that what you dealt with in substance abuse may have contributed to your heart issues? That's a great question. I spoke with Dr. Wu, who's the president of the American Heart Association and that runs the Stanford Heart Institute, and he's doing the work on my heart cells. And we talked about my drinking and using days, and he said that it would not have shown up in that cardiac arrest event. But what they did find after 10 months of growing my heart cells is that my heart cells respond to stress differently than a normal heart cell. So if being in high altitude is stressful, if physical activity, you know, I'm learning a lot, John, about heart function and Cardiac arrest happens every 90 seconds, and it's not just old dudes. And men, women, the leading cause of uh, death for women, I think, is heart disease in some form. It happens more than you know. Tell me if I'm wrong here. When these events unfold, when you have this cardiac arrest event on the court, were you playing in a celebrity exhibition event that was trying to raise money for the awareness of sudden cardiac arrest? So for 11, 12 years, I've been participating in an event called the Guter Foundation, and it's about bringing awareness around CPR, chest compressions, and AEDs. Stephen Guter had died of a cardiac arrest while out running in perfect health with the family. And so I was aware of AEDs, CPR, chest compression, and cardiac arrest. This event was at the Garden of the Gods Resort and. I had been playing a lot of tennis, so it was no problem for me to do this. It was a few hundred people in the crowd, and by the grace of God, there were some off-duty medical professionals, an ex-fire chief, and people who knew what to do in a timely manner, and an AED 10 feet from the court. That's one of the key parts of this, right? And lends itself to the work that you're doing now, which is somebody yells out, we need the AED, 
And Luke knows exactly where it is. Yeah. And that raises two big points. One, that there's actually an AED on site, and two, somebody knows where it is. And that's not always the case, is it? No, that I found out, you know, I, I've become quite emotional about this gift we all have called life. Luke was told the day before where that AED was. And you know, luckily, what I have found out that there's less than 30% of the tennis courts in America have an AED. That's just tennis. And I hear whether it's a mom or a dad or a child on a soccer pitch goes down and, and you might have an AED, but is it locked in the closet, you know, somewhere in the school? Is it, do you know that anybody can use it? You know, I'm at a fancy resort or a country club and it says for authorized personnel only. Well, <laughs> if, if someone's going down, I don't think that person that's gone down cares who's authorized and who's not. A seven-year-old can open an AED and save dad or mom's life. And John, all of a sudden, last year, we're in Washington, D.C., and Murphy is with Damar Hamlin, and they're putting a bill on the table to put AEDs in public facilities throughout the United States. To be in that moment where Murphy Jensen has come so far and the power of Washington, D.C. in this country, when it works, it's a very powerful moment. You speak of the emotional impact that this has had on you and the psychological impact that this had on you. What sort of physical changes did you make, did you introduce into your life in terms of nutrition and fitness as a result of this major cardiac event? Every day, I, I have boxes I check, and I'll do 30 minutes of cardio, and I'm playing as much tennis as possible, or uh, oxygen and meditating, anything to slow down. You know, it's so easy to get wrapped up. I think I need to be mindful of the amount of caffeine intake. It's funny. My, my wife said on that day of the cardiac arrest, I had an abnormal amount of caffeine on that the day before and the leading up to it in high altitude, possibly dehydrated. And the potassium, I'll eat a banana every day. So I uh, load up on any and all diets that will help my brain function and memory. I can get overwhelmed with loud noises and bright lights, so I, I try to avoid that at all costs. If you see me wearing sunglasses inside, it's because it's really bright and it's giving me a headache or something. I do the physical to help my mental, and, and I do the mental work to ensure that I'm, I'm held accountable to what's going on between my ears because I can't afford to get angry. I can't afford to go there. It's such a gift to be able to take care of ourselves and take care of myself. I know what it's like not to be able to walk or possibly talk or to be dead. And I'll be damned if I don't live. This is called Heart of the Game. So I'd like you each to answer this question. What is the heart of the game to you? Yeah, to me, it's the ability to commit to something and commit to people that believe in you, invest in you. And if you can find a community that wants to give you an opportunity based on your dreams and your potential and what you're willing to commit to it, everything is possible. So when I talk to kids today that do have dreams, that get sidetracked, there's always an opportunity to come back to that heart of the game. 
to what you truly believe in, which has to be yourself and your superpower, which is I love myself and I love what I'm doing every single day. And I may not win the day, but in the end, I will win. Murphy? You know, tennis, the scoring system says that love means nothing. And I have learned that in this thing called life, love means everything. You know, so the heart of the game for me is to love what you do. Be around people that love you. Today's the day. The time is now. Cherish everything. You know, and if nobody's told you they love you today, I do. And there's nothing you can do about it. And I say that a lot. And I got that from John Robinson, who is the tech on the on the detox and psych ward when I was so hurting. He said that to me, and I share that with anybody that I meet, and I mean it. Arthur Ashe is famously quoted as saying, True heroism is remarkably sober. True heroism is not the urge to surpass others at whatever cost, but the urge to serve others at whatever cost. You know, And service saved my life. People helped me and cared for me and carried me. And that's what I'm doing as I'm carrying it forward. And, and to me, that's the heart of the game is to be of service in every area of my life. It's really touching. And, and I've spent the last two and a half hours thinking I was interviewing the Jensen brothers. And I feel like I was just talking to the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Where's the rip roaring, yeah. high five and chest bumping brothers? <laughs> uh, we're there. We're still here. You guys are very much here. The Jensen brothers, Luke and Murphy, were a big-haired phenomenon that gave tennis a jolt when the sport was in dire need of a reset. Their outsized personalities and big-time ability made them superstars who inspired a generation of players. The Bryan brothers, identical twins Bob and Mike, won more Grand Slams than any other pair in tennis history. They cite the Jensens as a huge influence on their careers. Many years after their professional tennis careers ended, Luke and Murphy continue to inspire others through their work off the court. Daring to be different continues to pay off for the brothers all these years later. On the next episode of Heart of the Game, meet the first family of water polo, the Fishers. Aria and Mackenzie Fisher are two of the greatest players in the history of the sport. They'll talk about the challenges they faced winning Olympic gold, what they learned from their dad, and just how rough it gets in the pool during a match. We could see the pain that he felt from getting fourth in his Olympic games and how much he wanted that final game back. What was imparted in me from a young age was making sure that you're putting everything into the game so that when the game does end, at least you can be confident that there's not anything you're wishing for back. Heart of the Game is a production of Ruby Studio from iHeartMedia. Our show is hosted by me, John Frankel. Our executive producer is Matt Romano. Our EP of post-production is Matt Stillo. Our supervising producer is Nakia Swinton. This show was edited by Sierra Spreen. Our writer and researcher is Mike Avila. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. 
It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.